At this time, we can uh, dismiss the children for children's praise. I think Bill Darby will be taking them back there today. And uh, we'll continue through our sermon series on being surprised by the Spirit. We're walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you could turn there. What we're seeing is um, the surprise of what Jesus' ministry really was as people first encountered Him and His work and mighty deeds of power. As we look through the Gospels to see the life of the Gospel in Jesus Christ and everyone around Him was not expecting for Him to do the things He did. It was a surprise. He is moving and working and operating and installing His kingdom in ways that no one else expected. Primarily by the power of His Spirit, being the Messiah, the one anointed by the Holy Spirit to do something, some things that no one else could do. Uh, before we do that, we'll go to prayer now. Uh, Lord, uh, together as we pray here in this, uh, in this time, Lord, we come here uh, with all of our uh, heavy burdens, Lord, that we lay them at your feet. Lord, we understand what you've given us. We understand your great grace. We understand... Uh, the gospel that has called us. We have seen the cross for what it is. We have seen Jesus Christ for how he is presented to us. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed your son to us. No one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And to whomever the son chooses to reveal him, Lord. We understand that you have brought us into this eternal love. The love that the father has for the son. And the son for the father. Lord, we thank you that we can say that you love us. Oh, Father, you love us as you love your own Son. You love us with an eternal love that is pure and righteous. Father, we confess this and thank you and praise you for it, Lord. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together as a church. We thank you, Lord, for the love that we have. And we can give. We can actually give what we have. We can give love. We can extend sacrifice. For you have extended. Your arm has been not too short to reach us. No one could dare tell you to stay your hand. And no one could dare claim that you could not reach into this world and save even us. That your hand is strong. It is long. It is powerful to save. You've extended your love to us. You've extended your love to us in such ways that we only begin now to understand what has been given to us in your Son. So Father, with this love we have, we ask in this prayer earnestly before you, as a church we pray, Father, that you would have us love as you've loved us. Lord, have us love one another. Have us love our enemies. Have us love those in this world. That they would know that we are your disciples by the love that we have for one another. Lord, we ask that you would pour out in your spirit, filling us to be under the control and conviction of Christ. Lord, we have many things that are concerning us in this life. Lord, we lift up particularly here in this church, Barb. Lord, we lift up Kathy Matea's um, uh, friend for uh, her sister-in-law. Lord, we pray, uh, Lord, with her um, uh, kidney cancer diagnosis. Lord, we ask that you would uh, bring healing to her body. 
and that you would calm her mind and that you would stay her mind fixed on you, Lord, and that if she does not know you or the true gospel, that this would be the moment that she comes to see that everything is fleeting and passing and that Jesus Christ is the only source of life. And Father, we pray for you to comfort her and particularly heal and redeem her body. Father, we also lift up PJ again for his continued healing through surgery. Lord, we lift up Erica, uh, his wife being pregnant and being induced this week even, Lord, that it would be a smooth and successful surgery. Lord, we lift up Doshin before you, Lord. Lord, we ask for your hand to be upon his life as he undergoes aortic valve surgery this week, tomorrow even. Father, we pray for your protection upon him. We pray for you to have his mind be fixed upon you. Lord, we pray that this is it. This is the moment where we love each other in this church. That we have been given much, Lord, and so we give greatly. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us alone. Father, we pray for your great grace to be upon our nation. Lord, we pray for revival and reformation. We pray for it over and over again. We pray, Lord, that you would open up blind eyes and soften hard hearts and quicken dead ears to hear the goodness of Christ, to see the beauty of Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would be a nation that is godly, a group of people that submit to the Lordship of Christ, for you have been exalted to the highest height. You have become king. And yet, Lord, Hebrews 2 says, we do not yet see all things in submission to you, that you will subdue. You will win the day. You will bring in the kingdom of peace. And we will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. And the knowledge of the Lord will be as the waters on the sea. As there is no wet, no dry molecule in all the oceans, Lord. There will never be a place on the earth in which they do not know the Lord and His anointed one. Father, we pray for that. We pray that Your will would be done. On this earth as it is in heaven. We pray into the future kingdom. That is coming with great power and glory. And has been coming. And is coming. And will come. For you are the God that was. That is and is to come. You are the eternal ancient of days. And there is no one who could stop your hand. And Father how we praise you for this reality. That we know that in all your power. In all your justice. In all your goodness Lord. You extend. Great love. That you have poured out your love upon this world. Entering into this with us, Lord. And suffering for all of our sins were laid on that tree. So, Father, Lord, we ask for your grace particularly. That you would help us to realize that we are here before you. You said, Lord, when you left, that you would not leave us or forsake us. That we right now, Lord, are sitting where I am standing in your presence. It is before your face, Lord, that we open this word and we ask, particularly with all faith, trusting your Holy Spirit to quicken us, to hear you today. Lord, we ask you to speak boldly to us, clearly to us, cut us to the heart. For those of us who are weak, please strengthen us. For those of us who are proud, Lord, we ask you to please break us that you would make all things righteous in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, and so here we are.
I'm going to have a drink of water if you don't mind. I usually don't do this. I feel awkward doing this, so I'm going to say it so it doesn't feel as awkward. I'm good now. Um, that water's been there probably since December. But I take little sips each week, so it's going to last. I mean, it'll probably be until summertime. I'll probably wrap it up. Um, <laughs> you didn't know that, but now you do. Uh, Matthew 11 is our word uh, today. <clears throat> we saw John the Baptist last, um, last week, and uh, we understand that he was not very um, in tune with what Jesus was doing, and he said, are you the Messiah? Should we expect another? He was surprised uh, by Jesus uh, doing some things he expected, but not everything he expected, particularly the whole um, wrath thing. Uh, Jesus wasn't doing a lot of wrath, and John was looking for it. We're going to get a little more into that here in Matthew 11. Jesus is going to explain, uh, particularly now, why uh, he does what he does. And there is truth in everything of the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah will bring uh, wrath, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Um, and Jesus is going to explain that here on his own terms. Uh, and so I present that before you uh, in Matthew 11, verse 16, we'll pick up, where Jesus says this, after he's already, in this portion of Matthew, performed many signs and wonders and miracles, and Jesus responds with frustration by all of this. To what shall I compare this generation? He says. It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he responds by saying, yet wisdom will be justified by her deeds. In other words, Jesus is saying, let John do what John must do, and I will do what I must do. And we'll see that both were doing their ministry appropriately, and the wisdom will be found in what results from that. He goes on to say, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, he says, Chorazin, and to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And to you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And here's the injunction. Come to me. 
Come, he's saying this to you this morning. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is Jesus' word to his people in his generation. And it's the same word that is extended today. Because what he began there 2,000 years ago is fundamentally or principally similar to what he is doing today. He has not altered his plan. His plan was to be the Messiah. His plan was to be anointed, to be full of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation, he is the one with the seven spirits, the fullness of the Spirit. And he resurrects and ascends to the right hand of God Almighty. And he says, now wait, that you'd be endued with power from on high. And he pours out his Spirit upon the church. And you and I are here today as a result of that. For you have not seen Jesus. You were not there. You were not in Chorazin or Bethsaida. But you're here, and you love Him, though you don't see Him. What He is doing now, He is doing by the power of His Spirit. And that call resounds, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly at heart. Jesus is frustrated in this point, where he actually begins for the first time to pronounce judgments upon the people in his generation. Now, this is where we're seeing the difference. There was John the Baptist, who was very much on the fire and brimstone side of things. He started off by saying, the, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. You must turn and repent, for the day of the Lord is coming. He will baptize with the Spirit, and he also baptized with fire, this Messiah who is coming. And John emphasized the fire. The fire will come. God's judgment. Now Jesus didn't do all that. But here's his real warning where he starts to actually speak again about God's judgment, the fire. But he uses it in such a way that he describes the people here as two types of children. See, there's mighty works in the world. God does mighty works every day. Some of them you and I are aware of. Some of them we're not aware of at all. But all of us saw the sun come up this morning. Some see it and give glory to God and say, look at his mighty power in which he did this. Yet again, the sun came up today. Right? That power, amazing. The, the sun, it did it. I can't, can you believe it? You wake your wife up and say, the sun's up. The sun's up today. He did it again. Would you believe God could do that? And then there's others that will never see the power of God in their whole life. but not because it's not there. Hebrews 1.3 The raising of the sun in the sky or the raising of the Son of God into the heavens. This is the greatest demonstration of God's power. It says this, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sin, he says, he sat down of the right hand of the majesty on high. This is God's greatest demonstration of power. Everything you see now is all a demonstration of his power. And he is upholding all this at this present moment by the word of that power. Yet nothing compares, everything compels in comparison according to what would be the radiance of 
of God's glory in the resurrection of his own son, that a man with flesh and blood like you and I would ascend to the highest heavens and be demonstrated as Lord of the cosmos. This is God's greatest power. He demonstrates that power only only secondarily or only in the most remarkable use of that power once more is again drawing people to his son. For that is the great work of God. This is the mighty work of God, the power of God is that he would raise his son to life and then take everyone who has never seen him or known him and actually hate him and have the same hearts toward him as those who crucified him and twist your souls in such a way that you would come to him and love him. This, this is the demonstration of God's greatest power and working in this world. And I hope to show you that from what Jesus has to say here to those who are in his generation. For those in his generation are not far removed from you and I in this generation. They could not perceive Jesus' mighty works. Jesus speaks of two groups of children here. One, presumably maybe a little older, but the second group of children he calls little children. The first group he just calls children. So I'm going with that for the sake of analogy to see. When you have small children, there's a difference between having older children in the sense of presumption or confidence. Right? So the little ones, the little, little ones, they really don't know how to tie their shoes put their jacket on, anything. They need you for everything. They are always saying, what's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? The whole world is magical. They're the ones that almost could look at the sun and be like, wow, I did it again. Because they've only really seen the sun for maybe two days. They are actually aware the sun was up there. Right? I'm talking little, little ones. Right? The thing where you start to develop all your confidence and assurances in this life. Before that all happened, there was a time when you were really little, little, and everything was magic. Everything was miraculous. Everything was a miracle. Everything was a mighty work of God. It wasn't until maybe the 30th or the 40th day that you saw the sun come up that you said, oh, that's what that does. Eh, eh, it's not that interesting anymore. But you have to be little. Jesus talks about little kids here. You have to be little. And remember, this whole world is amazing. But the problem is you get a little older. Not too old that you actually know really anything. Just young enough you think you know everything. And that's the problem. You and I are here. This is us. This is actually everybody. You and I as adults, we have to see this. Jesus is pulling out this imagery to say, you are, it's, it's a joke. When you're a teenager, you should apply for the best job ever. Because pretty soon you're not going to know everything again. But while you're a teenager, you should probably put that on your resume. You know everything. You might land a really nice job. But see, that's the age you and I live in. This is us right now. We think we know things. And because we think we know things, we won't know anything. There's two children that Jesus has. One he thinks need rebuked, and the other group of children he commends as being exemplary. Unrepentant sinners are fickle. So these are the older children. He says, what shall I say to this generation? They are like children, old enough now. They're in the marketplace playing by themselves, and they're playing a game. 
And they're playing by their own rules. They're not playing along because they think they know better. What shall I say to this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. The images of children who are just trying to play a make-believe game of some sort and they're not getting along because one group wants to do this and one group wants to do that. They have mixed expectations. They think they know better. They think they know how this game should go. And therefore, because they think they have this all figured out, they actually don't have any good fellowship or friendship together as a group of friends in the marketplace. And he's saying, this is exactly how you're interpreting me. You aren't happy with John. You're not happy with me. You think the Messiah should do this. You think John should do that. John doesn't eat. He doesn't wear nice clothing. He lives an aesthetic type of life. And you think he's possessed by a demon. And here I am being jovial, being joyful, being full of food, having good time, being fellowship with people in the weddings and whatnot. And you think that I'm overeating. I'm a drunkard and a glutton. You, you can't win. Some people say, well, I, would, I can't believe God because of all the suffering in my life. And some people come to God because of all the suffering. Right? It's, you just can't win. There's no, God can't produce a circumstance in your life in which you would accept Him. Because you're always going to say, it's for this reason, or it's for that reason. Right? This is like us. We are children. We are children that think we know. You've been around for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. I know how this world works. You have no idea how this world works. None of us have an idea of this world works. The only one who knows how this world works is the one who made the world. We are in the teenage stage where we've been long enough to think we know, but we don't know anything. We think we know everything. And we roll out everything God actually has to say. We need to be like little children. When I talk to my young daughter, she says, what's that? What's this? Oh my gosh, what's that? That's a zipper. We have to talk about zippers. Right? Everything has to be laid out because... She doesn't know anything. And she's in that position, that unique age, in which everything in the whole cosmos can be labeled by the Father. I can just say, I could say, that zipper, oh, we call that a pear. She wouldn't know any better. But it doesn't matter because she's taking on a posture is that the Father can label and know and describe. He knows this world. Right? That's the only way you're going to find Jesus. If you think you know it all, then God will let you keep thinking you know it all. Fine. Go know it all. Go know it all for the rest of your life and see how that goes. But if you want to sit and listen and say, Father, what is this? What is this ball of nuclear explosions in the sky? What is that thing you made? It, that's a whole different child that Jesus addresses. These ones that know it all, they can't accept John uh, he's just too, he's too severe, too aesthetic. He's, he, he's just not the right guy. And he can't, he can't accept Jesus. He's, well, he just eats too much. John doesn't eat enough. Jesus eats too much. The problem of all this fickleness is what we call with the problem, and here's the word, the problem of uh, induction. I'm going to throw that word out there. I think it's a good word to use. We say inducing somebody uh, would be uh, pregnancy. We, to, to induce something is to lead or move or cause something, a course of action or chain of events. To induce something is to cause something to happen, right? And so when we say, it's time for that baby to come out, it's time for the baby to be induced. We need to get that baby out. The baby thinks it's all warm and cozy in there, but there's a whole entire life to happen now. And sorry, but you actually have to get out of there. So it's induction. We, we cause the baby to move out, right? Well, what I'm going to say is this. This is our problem. Our problem is induction, and I'm going to say it's logical induction. 
I'm taking this actually from Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist philosopher of the previous century. And he wrote a book called The Problems with Philosophy. And in there he wrote five or six, seven or eight things. Say, say, things that just don't make sense. Things we can't prove. Things that actually are problems for the human mind to think through. The, I would say, I would retitle the book and say, The Teenager Turning to Be 20. Right? See, most of the most smartest and, and self-proclaimed intellects of our age are just teenagers. They just are realizing they know some things, but then you get a little older and you realize, I know, you don't know what you don't know, but once you know things, you know enough that you don't know enough. That's true wisdom. And so this was his best version. He remained an atheist his whole life, but he described what is called the problem of induction. And the problem of induction follows this, that we experience specific instances in our life. And what we have to do with that is we have to take those specific instances and make general rules. Specific instances produce general rules. Simple enough. That's the exact difference between children and adults. You have specific instances. You have a catalog, a hard drive, a history of your whole life experience that makes general rules. Generally, geese have feet that geese have. Generally, geese have two wings. Generally, you would say there is such a thing as a gray elephant. Why? Because every elephant I've ever seen is a gray elephant. Specific experience of one elephant to the next elephant to the next elephant, and then all of a sudden elephants aren't cool anymore. They just have this general category. You work out, it induces, it causes you. These specific examples force you, they cause you, they induce you to produce one general rule that elephants are gray. And then life, when this happens for everything, that's called being boring, right? That's called being an adult. That's called reading the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels and just being a liberal theologian and being like, well, it obviously doesn't mean there was miracles. Yeah, that's exactly it. You couldn't be a miracle, because I haven't seen these kind of miracles. I've experienced them, so I have no rule for them. There, you've lost it. You have no faith like a child anymore. You've lost it all. These miracles, the mighty works of God throughout all the Gospels are pushing you, testing you right now. Will you read this? And how will you deal with this miracle? If this miracle offends you, you are arrogant. If this miracle offends you, you are a teenager who think you know everything. If this miracle doesn't fit your categories of induction, then now you are beyond the gospel. So Jesus has all these mighty works, these miracles. The fact is, though, if I were to speak to my daughter or some three or four-year-old and say there's a thing called a purple elephant, she would simply just say, okay. See? That possibility is open for her. It's still open. The problem, Bertrand Russell said with induction, is that you never really know. You really don't know that there isn't a purple elephant on Mars. There might be. There really might be. You never absolutely know. That's the problem with induction. It's not real knowledge. It's assumed knowledge that things that exist the way they are now will continue into the future the way they are now. That is a logical fallacy. And that's what he says is the problem of induction. You, it helps to make that assumption. It helps to assume the sun's going to rise tomorrow. But guess what? You don't know it will rise tomorrow. Jesus, Matthew 24, as in the days of Noah, 
He says, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man, the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. The days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage. That is, they were doing induction. They were saying, it is yet another day. The sun has arisen yet one more. It is time to go make dinner today. It is time for you to get married today. It is time to go about our day as if it were every other day. We will infer from previous experience of prior days that today will be like that day. But that one day out of all other days was unlike any other day because it never stopped raining. And Jesus says, that is Bertrand Russell's problem of induction. You foolishly assume on previous experience that you as a teenager who knows everything have created your categories to know now today will be like that day. But you are not the God of days or the God of clouds and rain. There could be a day in which God would say, this day will not be like that day. This day will be a different day. This will be the day I flood the earth. But someone was supposed to get married that day. And here Jesus says, this is what it will be like on the day of the Son of Man. The problem is not knowing the purpose of his miracles here. Jesus rebukes all of them because of the mighty works he had done. Isn't that amazing to think? Jesus has been in his ministry going around producing miracles and healing and helping people who are maimed and opening the eyes of the blind. And as a result of that, he says, you all are going to go to hell. You will go down to Hades, Sheol, the place of the nether dead, the spirit realm. You will go there. And why? Well, because I've been doing miracles. And the fact that that's mysterious to us means we don't understand what these miracles meant. Why would they be judged? Because you did miracles. He says, particularly, because they did not repent. They did not repent. See, normally storms don't, uh, don't rain forever. But on the flood they did. Normally blind eyes are not opened by a touch. But Jesus can do that. Normally the sun rises the next day. But Jesus in Matthew 24 describes the day of the Lord in Matthew 24, 29. A day in which the sun is darkened. A day in which the moon does not give light. A day in which the stars fall from the sky. Do you see that? Jesus is describing the day of judgment in which every preconceived notion you have on the way the world works is reversed. The, the sun should come up tomorrow. But if tomorrow is the day of the Lord, maybe the sun won't come up tomorrow. It's the imagery of decreation. It's the imagery of the one who made all this and built it up could always just tear it back down. The only reason it functions in the uniformity that it does now, as we read in Hebrews 1, is because he is presently upholding all things by the word of his power. Every moment is a miracle. Every moment is a sovereign absolute powerful intervention of God in the world now. The only reason we don't see that is because we are teenagers that have based our categories on previous experience and we put them in these categories and we assume not God's intervention in anything. But all we have to do is change His word that upholds the world. For one word could fail the stars from sky and we would call that the problem, the problem of this age. And so what God has done through Jesus Christ in these miracles is he is breaking those categories on purpose. The point of the miracles is for someone to stop and say, 
I have never seen a paralytic wall. I don't have a category for that. I have not experienced this before. I have never seen a man command the waters of the storm to fall flat and the waves and the swells to bow his feet. I've never seen anyone do that. That's the point. The point is to say, the one who controls all this is here now. And so all these mighty works that he has done, he denounces all the cities that saw all this because they would not repent. Woe to you, he says, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Those mighty works that were done to you, Tyre and Sidon, if they were done there, they would have repented. And here's the phrase. Here's the phrase that should cause you a holy, helpful, humble, godly fear. He says, I tell you, it will be more, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Again, he addresses Capernaum. Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? No. You brought down to Hades, Sheol, the place of the dead. You're going to die. The mighty works done in you, if they were done in Sodom, he says, it would be more tolerable. You need to hear this phrase. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The reason that's so important to know is at the time of Jesus saying this, Sodom doesn't exist. Okay? Sodom was destroyed thousands of years ago. They already actually fell under the fire of God's wrath. His judgment. Jesus' warning is, it's not over for them. There will be future, there will be a day of judgment. A day of judgment in which it will be graded. That's, that is gradations of judgment. Some will have a more tolerable judgment and some a less tolerable judgment. It will actually be worse for Bethsaida where these miracles were performed on the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah is already judged temporally. They don't exist anymore as a city. But there will be a general resurrection and a final judgment in which everybody will have to give an account for their life. It's appointed for man wants to die, Hebrews 9. And then comes judgment. They already died. They haven't been judged yet. That's the thing. Judgment itself is not, death itself is not even the judgment. They will come back and their judgment is still future. And those judgments will be graded on various things that are done in the body. That, you, that we would actually have a due recompense for deeds done in the flesh. And some will be judged more severely than others. And so whatever people would say is that John the Baptist is all about fire and brimstone. And Jesus is going around just, just, just drinking wine and doing miracles. No. Here Jesus is correcting it and saying, yes, everything John said is true. I, I will preach to you about the judgment to come. But not yet. The whole point of the sermon series is to be surprised by the Spirit. Surprised by the Spirit. They always thought that the day of the Messiah's coming and that the day of the judgment, that is the day of the kingdom, when the kingdom was coming and the day of judgment would be together. And Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom has come. The day of judgment is not yet. Right now, I want you to be surprised. 
by the Spirit. I have yet greater works to work. I have yet to win the nations. I have yet to grab people's souls and hearts and make them love me because they love me. Not because they don't want to go to hell. I mean to change them. No one wants to go to hell. But who wants Jesus Christ? Now that would be a miracle. If someone would love Jesus Christ. And here is where he demonstrates that power. That is something. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one that they may receive what is due for every deed done in the body. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. The problem of miracles is that they're worthless without the word. And so for the few minutes we have, I want to demonstrate exactly what miracles are for Jesus. Why is he rebuking him this way? Miracles were not important to him. What was important to him was preaching the gospel. Because that's where the real power is. Miracles really aren't that impressive. They're really not. And most of them we can mimic with modern science. We produce what would be things of miracles of old. We can do amazing things. That's fine. Changing a sinful heart? You can't do that. We don't even know what the heart is. What is the psyche? What is the mind? What is the immaterial part of the human body? We can't even identify that, let alone touch it. How do you change that? So here is Jesus in Mark 1. Everyone is looking for him. He has been performing miracles everywhere. And the very next day, he wakes up in the morning. And Peter comes to him and says, everyone's looking for you. Where have you been? That is, people are looking to be healed. So in that crowd, there are people who can't walk. In that crowd, there are people who can't see. In that crowd, there are people who have cancer. In that crowd, there are people who have heart disease. Jesus, couldn't you just come and heal them? And he says, let's go to the next town. For this is the reason I came. I need to preach the gospel. Luke 4. The sun is setting again and Jesus is performing miracles everywhere. And they departed and he went to a desolate place by himself. And people came out to sought him. And it says in the text that they would have kept him. They would have kept him. We found a man who can heal everything. Stay in my town. If Jesus cared about miracles, if he cared absolutely for your physical body, he would heal it. We're going to get to it. But he actually says, no, I must go. That person there that is dying, I must leave them to die. I need to go to the next town to preach the gospel. In Luke 10, he sends out 72 people of his disciples and he tells them to go and preach the gospel. And they return rejoicing, rejoicing and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And he responds to them quickly so they don't get a misunderstanding of what's going on. He says, do not, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Who cares? Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice in that, for that's why I came. In John 5, there is a man at the pool of Bethesda. Paralyzed man. We're told in the text that multitudes of invalids were in this colonnade. A five-roof colonnade that held hundreds of people. We're told that they were blind, they were lame, they were paralyzed. We're told that Jesus went to one man out of this multitude, went to one man and healed him. 
The man's been there for 38 years. Jesus has walked this town multiple times. Jesus has passed this man and not cared to heal him until this moment because the miracles are nothing except signs, symbols of what is to come. And he heals this man and runs away. And the man's healed and they ask who healed you and he says, I don't even know his name. He left. But we're told why he left. Jesus withdrew, it says in verse 13, John 5, 13. Hear this. Jesus withdrew because there were large crowds in that place. So there were crowds of invalids, multitudes of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, all there. Jesus heals one of them and then gets out. Jesus, don't you know, if you heal that man, everyone would be super excited. And they'd all start coming to you and everyone there would seek a healing. If you would have just stayed, Jesus, all of them could have been healed. Precisely for the fact that there were large crowds. He left. Why? Doesn't he care? Those who do miracles don't have eternal life. Matthew 7, 22. Didn't we prophesy in your name and your name cast out many demons in your name perform many miracles? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. You might have done miracles, doesn't mean anything. Those who receive miracles don't have eternal life. In Luke 17, there's a village of 10 lepers, and Jesus heals all 10 of the lepers. Only one, only one of the 10 turned back and gave thanks and praise to God and fell at Jesus' feet and worshipped him. And Jesus' response was, weren't there 10 that were healed? Do you see? Do you see? He heals 10 lepers. One comes back and praises God. There's nothing in miracles. Miracles are nothing. Why? Because all those lepers are dead now anyway. What does it matter? See, the mighty work of God. This is a beautiful thing that Herman Ritterboss says. And we'll close shortly. Nowhere in the Gospels do we see that a miracle has an independent or transcendent function detached from preaching of the Gospel. In the Gospels, any other attempt to reveal Christ's miraculous power originates from the devil and from those who tempt Christ. Think this. Jesus took five loaves of bread and multiplied them miraculously to feed 5,000. Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and he hasn't eaten for 40 days. And Satan says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And he says, no. Why? So he'll make bread for 5,000 men alone, women and children plus. That's a lot of bread. He hasn't eaten. He's by himself in the desert, no one around. He's hungry. And Satan says, make some bread. And he says, no. It's not about the miracles. It's about the preaching of the gospel. There was no one there to see the bread being made. There was no one there to see his glory and what anything he could do. He was not there to make miracles for himself. Everything Jesus did was about the gospel. The feeding of the 5,000 pointed to him being like Moses, him being like the Messiah to come. The reason that bread was made that way was to show his glory and who he was as the Messiah. All the miracles had to preach. If they didn't preach, they were worthless miracles or they were miracles solicited by Satan himself or others who doubted him and wanted to see a sign and wonder. 
Herod the Great didn't believe in him, but wanted to do a magic trick. And he said, I won't do it. But when someone comes to him so that he would show his own glory, he'll do it. See, wordless miracles are worthless miracles. Everything Jesus is doing is about this, the gospel. Coming to him for who he is. And so he responds and ends by saying this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke, that symbol of slavery and bondage, and you wrap that around your neck, put it upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Your yoke will be easy and your burden will be light. He will take all your labors. He will take all your sin, all your guilt, all your shame. That yoke was a symbol for human slavery. To put a yoke on your back means that you are someone's slave and you are meant to carry heavy objects for a living. And he flips that very image and say, take that yoke upon you and you will never lift a heavy weight again. Come under my discipleship. Let me guide you and goad you along through this yoke, but you will not lift heavy burdens. And the reason that his yoke is so heavy, so light, the yoke of Christ is so light, is because the cross of Christ was so heavy. See, we all must have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ for every word, deed, or thought done in the body. And that we all actually have to render account, to, to receive what is due to us for every deed done in the body. But see, every evil deed that you have ever done in your body found its evilness in every evil deed that was done to his body as he bore that cross on the tree. And therefore he says from that position, take my yoke upon you. You have nothing to fear in the judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon, Bethsaida and Chorazin. Do not go their way. Come to me. Come to me. You will be free. Your day of judgment will be light. You have nothing but rewards. Everything that you've ever done in the body, I took for you in my body. All the wrath in the hell is absorbed. It is absorbed. I take the burden of that heavy plank that I pinned my body to. And it was heavy indeed. A man had to help me carry it up the mountain. And all your sin was soaked into that wood with my blood. And it is gone. And now take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I will not bury you down. I will not weigh you down. You will come into my throne room, my behemoth, my white seat throne of judgment, and you will not be struck to the floor. You will be lifted to the heights. Be free and become my slave. In my bondage, you will be free. Take my yoke and let me guide you wherever I want. And don't fight me. How could you fight someone who loves you like that? There's a certain worldly power that we love to yoke other men and tell them what to do. But God's mighty work is that he loves you so much that he'll command you what to do and you'll do it with joy because you love him too. All the burdens he places on you are burdens you want to have because he's changed you from the inside out. That's why your burdens are never heavy. Because he's made your heart desire the things that he likes. No one can do that kind of power. Miracles are nothing. He will raise your body up. Everyone who received a miracle or resurrection is dead.
but there is true life in that cross. Dear Father, Lord, we come and we understand that we are here before you today, Lord, particularly at this table you've called us. And we know that our burdens are light. We know that we will not be pressed down. Because we know that you were crushed for us. All the, Isaiah says you were crushed. The Father crushed you. It pleased the Father to crush you. It was all the sin. All our sin rested upon you. The wrath of the Father rested upon you to follow. And you were crushed like the bread that will be between our teeth. But Father, we thank you that in your crushing, Lord, we may stand tall with perfect righteousness. So let us have this in our hearts to do this in remembrance of you. Holy Spirit, fill us that we might do it.